you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. LAist Studios. A quick warning. Some of the series includes descriptions of graphic violence. Last week on Norco 80. Creek and, and uh, what we're trying to do is hit the engines on the police vehicles to stop them. I wasn't trying to kill them. Green fire upon. That was 20 unit with Evan. He took a round in the right eye, which basically killed him instantly. He sent many memos to the sheriff that last year before he died. He told them, We need military assault rifles. It's almost like he could see it coming. He'd tell me, Something big is going to happen. After the robbers scattered into the forest, an eight-man SWAT team from San Bernardino began to make its way up the mountain in the fading daylight. They would take over the operation to search for the robbers. Deputy Sheriff D.J. McCarty, who had been the last officer to face off with the suspects and had seen Jim Evans killed before his very eyes, was leaving the scene and walking down the mountain when he saw the SWAT team. I'm curious if this is true and why you said it, that you told the SWAT team to not try to capture the robbers, to just fucking shoot them. Yes. I don't think it was exactly that way, but I remember the guys that were walking by, and you got to understand, what I was trying to tell them was, don't warn him. As soon as you see them, open up on him because they're going to do it to you. DJ told me he wished he had been better trained so that he could have fully used the power of the automatic weapon he had that day. Might have been a different outcome. What do you think the outcome would have been? I think I would have tried a hell of a lot harder to kill all four of them. And you think that would have been justice served? Well, um, Antonio, it's kind of hard. I, I realize where you're going with that, but... When people are trying to kill you, when they've shot eight cops, civilians, robbed a bank, and they're shooting at you, yeah, I want to kill them. I don't want to, I don't want to capture them. And that's just being flat honest. They made the decision of what they were going to do. You know, I hear, I hear, I just want to say I'm like very moved by your story and I've been very moved hearing you speak. But I do want to talk about some tough stuff because, I mean, hearing you say that, for instance, for me, my first impulse is, you know, it's not your role to say what the the punishment should be. Well, what I if I had the um, choice of the death sentence or uh, multiple life sentences, which would I choose? Is that what you're saying? 
No, the, the point I'm saying is that I think that it is the court system that decides what punishment should be levied on those men, you know, so whether they die or not yeah. is, you know, it makes me sad to hear you say that you would like would have wanted to kill them because I think ultimately that's mm-hmm. not your role. No, it's not. It's not my role to go out and kill. But when, uh, like I said, I think you're missing my point. They made the choice of what they're going to do. They planned this out very, very meticulously. So when it got to me after six cops that they shot, I think three civilians blowing up half of uh, two counties, when it got to me and they opened up on me, I'm not thinking about incarceration. I'm not thinking about capturing I'm thinking about defending myself and killing them. Not wounding, killing them. Stopping the threat. I know that sounds terrible, but I've been retired for a long time, so I can tell you the truth. I was not there to capture them. Now, if they threw their hands up in the air and dropped their weapons and laid on the ground, I'm not going to execute them. That's not me. But as long as they're shooting at me, I'm going to kill them. And from Elias Studios and Futuro Studios, this is Norco 80, a series about God, guns, survivalism, and the bank robbery that changed policing forever. Chapter 5, Big Guns. In response to the Norco bank robbery and subsequent chase, an angry police force would demand change. When they talk about the arming of police in America, it starts here. It starts with the narco bank robbery. George Smith had been shot in the firefight outside the bank. Later, he would tell the detective that once they got up into the mountains, he was losing so much blood he couldn't fight back any longer. Yeah, I was so bad hit that uh, I lost uh, just buku blood. But you had your gun. Yeah, I had my gun and I gave it to the other guys. And, and, you, and you were firing? No, not then. I was like I said, I was too bad hit. I was like feeling really weak, really uh, tap lip, like I'd lost too much blood. When the robber's yellow truck got to the dead end at the top of the mountain, they abandoned the vehicle and George Smith told the others they had to go on without him. And then when they jumped out of the van, I told them, uh, the truck, I told them, I'm, I'm too bad hit. You guys have to go on without me. So then I jumped off to the side. As the other robbers shot back towards the officers, George said he slipped away and laid down on the cold, damp ground. Do you know what happened to the others? And no, that was all up to them then, because I figured I'd had it. Did they say where they were going? No. The rest of the robbers then dispersed into the forest, figuring that it would be harder to capture them if they all went in different directions. As night descended upon the mountain, far up and away from city lights, the officers on scene decided to wait till the sun came up to begin the manhunt. Through the night, George was so weak and delirious, he lost his grasp on the concept of time. He told the detective he had laid in the rain for a couple of days, when in reality, he had been out in the woods for less than 12 hours. I laid in the rain for a couple of days. 
I was in kind of half a daze, getting ready to pass out. Russ Harvin, Chris's younger brother, was starting to get antsy, sitting in the pitch-black wilderness alone. He would later tell a detective about it. So walking down the road, he said, dude, you know, I'm going to sit here and freeze. I'm going to find Chris go to jail, you know, it's nice and warm. Russ said, I started walking down the road because I figured, I'm not going to sit here and freeze. I'm going to find Chris or go to jail where it's nice and warm. So uh, I found Chris and a little fire going down there. I saw this fire. Russ saw a fire at the bottom of the mountainside and followed it. It turned out Chris had started it. The brothers would spend their last night out in the world together. At daybreak, the officers set out to search for the robbers. A little after 8 a.m., four officers from the San Bernardino SWAT team and three sheriff deputies were combing through the canyon when they heard a voice yelling. It turned out to be George, sitting behind a manzanita bush, waving his hands and surrendering. Within the hour, Detective Ross Dvorak would be on the scene ready to interrogate George. George, under Dvorak from Sheriff's Homicide, do you understand that? What's your full name? George Smith. Ron Smith. At the same time, on the other side of the mountain, another group of officers were rolling through in a Jeep. When they came upon Chris and Russ Harvin, they were quickly handcuffed at gunpoint. George, Chris, and Russ were all arrested. Now the only robber left on the mountain was Manny Delgado. Manny was the older brother of Billy Delgado, the 17-year-old driver police had shot and killed outside the bank. We were searching for the outstanding suspect. John Placencia was in one of the helicopters that was radioing down to the officers on foot. He tried to grasp what was happening as he hovered above. As we searched the area in the helicopter, we spotted yellow gloves dishwashing yellow gloves. And apparently, it got so cold during the night that this guy wore those gloves to keep his hands warm. We directed the SWAT officers from LA County towards where we had spotted the the gloves. Within the LA Sheriff's Office, the SWAT team was often called the quote, hunt and kill team. Manny was lying on his stomach unaware that two of the SWAT officers were approaching him. One of the officers remembers yelling freeze and seeing Manny lift up onto all fours with a gun in his hand. The two officers began to shoot. And uh, shortly thereafter, we heard on the police radio that shots were fired and that the suspect was down. The first shot sunk into Manny's right shoulder. Then a second bullet went straight through his heart and killed him instantly. He was shot a total of four times. There remains some mystery around the fatal bullet. The autopsy says that the gun that killed Manny was touching his skin when it was fired. A theory would circulate in the press that in his last moments, Manny had actually shot himself. But in an interview, the coroner said, quote, we really can't say if Delgado died from his own gun, end quote. The bullet that killed him was never recovered. Both Delgado brothers had lost their lives 
to this heist gone terribly wrong. The chase, which covered over 40 miles and ended with 11 injuries and three fatalities, was over. But what happened in under a day would spark a series of events that would spiral out for years, starting with an outcry within the Riverside Sheriff's Department. We'll be right back. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. We're back. The sheriff of Riverside County was an imposing man with clipped white hair named Ben Clark. Can you describe Ben Clark? What did he look like? I I don't know, short hair, slightly overweight. Coyce Bird worked closely under Ben Clark for years. A well-regarded politician, Clark had been sheriff for the last 17 years, won four elections. And had a steel trap mind that I admired uh, all of my life and still do. He was seen as somewhat stoic uh, when questioned. He could be very stone-faced, and he simply sat there for as long as he needed to sit there until the other person became uncomfortable. <laughs> it was kind of an interesting personality. Ben Clark died in 2005. He spent a total of 36 years in the department. And Coyce remembers how the day of the robbery, both he and the sheriff were in the office listening to the dramatic events unfold on the dispatch. Riverside Narco units have a 211 in progress. Suspect's fled. A yellow pickup north by Hammer. We're taking routes. At the end of that long day, After managing the bank robbery, the chase, and the shootout, Sheriff Ben Clark had one more difficult task ahead of him. Just after 11 p.m., he went to the home of Mary Evans, wife of Jim Evans, to notify her that her husband was shot and killed in Lytle Creek Canyon. She was returning home from the babysitters. And as soon as we come up the hill, my neighbors are outside, and I say, oh, brother. And there was Ben Clark. And Ben Clark, you couldn't miss him because he was about 6'4", 6'5". So I walked up to him and I said to him, where's my husband? Nobody will tell me anything. I'm tired of this runaround. 
You tell me right now, where is my husband? Mary was frustrated. It had taken the sheriff hours to notify her of his death. And she was also mad because Jim had been worried for months that something like the Norco bank robbery could happen. I was so angry at that man, I'll tell you. And I looked up at him and I said to him, well, let me tell you something. Your term was up. He was going to run against you and take your job because he knew what he was doing, but evidently you don't. She told the sheriff if her husband had lived, he would have given him a run for his money. And so all the chiefs were standing there, and I turned to them and I said, you get him in the car and get him the hell off my property. Jim Evans' death shook up the deputies in his department. Deputy Andrew Delgado Monti, who was at the firefight outside the bank, remembers returning to the station that day and seeing his close friends. Then they took me to the station, and as soon as we pulled up, and we looked at each other, and I thought he'd been shot. He thought I'd been killed, and we hugged each other. We hugged each other for a long time. And uh, then he looked at me and said, uh, Evans is dead. He was killed. Deputy Rolf Parks, who led the chase on the highway, was also emotional. It could have been me. Maybe it should have been me, you know. So I have a little survivor's remorse that, uh, you know, Jim was laying out on the ground. He had been the last one in the chase and became the first. Had we had assault rifles, would have changed things. I'm guaranteeing you, I guarantee you as a former Marine and as a law enforcement officer, that would have made a difference. Those suspects would have never left that corner. They would have never left that corner. These emotions crystallized into clear demands. After the robbery, officers asked for radios that could communicate between different agencies, specialized training, and stronger firepower. The most controversial ask, getting bigger guns, that would start a fight. To understand the drama that would unfold, it's important to understand Sheriff Ben Clark's vision for the department when he first got the job. He advocated that uh, law enforcement is everybody's business. And in 1960s, he formed a community relations bureau, basically before most others did. In the 1960s, the relationship between community and police was fracturing. The public watched on TV as police clashed with anti-war and civil rights protesters, like at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Officers drove motorcycles into the crowds breaking them apart and dispersing the hippies. Hundreds of marchers and dozens of policemen were injured. Restraint was absent on both sides. This was later called a police riot. In California, Ben Clark was concerned with this image of law enforcement. He advocated officer training, standardized procedures, and balanced budgets. He wanted to professionalize the police in the eyes of the public. In 1969, he decided to completely revamp their look. 
for instance, using a blazer to see how the public would react to that as opposed to a standard police uniform. Koisberg monitored the experiment. At one sheriff's station, instead of the usual tan uniforms, deputies donned Kelly green blazers with matching green trousers and a dark green tie. I think that our sheriff might have been a little bit colorblind because they were just a little bit bright for me. Deputies were told to keep their handcuffs and guns out of sight tucked in their blazers and their nightsticks in their patrol cars. Instead of a badge, they wore an embroidered crest featuring a Liberty Bell and a set of scales. They suddenly looked like bureaucrats instead of cops. Well, it was an experiment to soften the image of police. Some people were saying, you look like uh, the military. You know, we don't want the military coming to our house to solve our problem. But the experiment didn't last. And uh, the result was that the public didn't really care one way or another you know, what the policeman looked like. And I think that it was uh, epitomized by an old guy that was under a cottonwood tree that one of our researchers talked to. And he says, well, it, it really don't make no difference what the policeman's wearing. He says, whether he's a country club cop or wearing a regular uniform, he says, they're all going to arrest you. The idea that police could use something as innocuous and simple as a blazer to build trust and peace in community, it feels quaint, but also hopeful. But just over 10 years later, the bank robbery at Norco happened, and the feelings in the department shifted in a very different way. At the time, the standard weapons police had access to were a shotgun and a revolver. The revolver only had six rounds and took a long time to reload. You have to push a lever and then reload them one at a time. So it, it's much slower. Semi-automatic weapons, on the other hand, don't have to be reloaded after every round, making it possible to fire more rounds more quickly. So here's an officer with a 35 or 40 bullet capability within a matter of uh, one minute. In the 1960s, the public was introduced to a style of semi-automatic weapon we are very familiar with today. The AR-15, the most popular rifle in America. The tour through the Pulse nightclub in Orlando came from an AR-15-style weapon. Seen here loading an AR-15 in the hallway of Stoneman Douglas High School. Lanza entered the building carrying a Bushmaster AR-15 assault rifle. They're designed to kill as many people as possible. The AR-15 was first developed in the 1950s for the military by a company called Armalite. AR actually stands for Armalite Rifle, not Assault Rifle. This is the Armalite AR-10, the modern combat rifle, a lightweight, rugged, and versatile weapon that combines the accuracy of a sniping rifle with the firepower of a machine gun. In 1963, Colt bought their design, and they used it to begin manufacturing the fully automatic M16 rifle for soldiers in Vietnam. Remember that it is the finest weapon of its type in existence. Practice with your M16. Keep your shooting skills at their highest level, so that whenever you're in a situation of danger, you will live to fight again. While the M16 was fully automatic, Colt decided to make a semi-automatic version for civilians, the AR-15. 
They could be bought at any regular sporting goods store. The Norco robbers had nine of these civilian versions of military guns. So that's why the officers, after the Norco robbery, wanted to carry weapons at least as powerful as what was available on the street. Coysbird, who was chief deputy sheriff under Ben Clark, agreed that this was the way forward. What do you think could have happened that day that would have led to less violence? Nothing that I can think of in terms of less violence. Uh, you Well, yeah, I can think of one thing. You could have put it down right to start with. If the officer showed up with a fully automatic weapon and they have uh, three suspects coming out with semi-automatic weapons, then you just shoot them all. At that point, it's just force overcoming force. But Sheriff Ben Clark didn't go for the idea. So after Norco, Sheriff Clark's style seemed to really come under a microscope by the people in the department. Oh, yeah. Well, there was anger. And in many deaths that I've seen over my career and life, uh, there's frequently anger uh, that's left after someone is killed, especially in the line of duty. Ben Clark saw Norco as an extremely rare incident. He was quoted in the newspaper saying that he did not believe more training or higher-powered weapons would have changed anything about that day. And Coy says that Clark felt revolvers were more reliable, less likely to jam. He didn't feel it was necessary to change. He thought it was better to wait and basically see how things uh, pan out. He wanted to take his time to assess the changes they might need instead of just responding to crisis. So he formed a committee to review weaponry and the radios. And he even said he would begin doing surprise inspections to make sure officers weren't secretly carrying their own personal high-powered weapons. Mary, Jim Evans' widow, recalls how jittery this made deputies. A couple of deputies came up to my house that I knew and stuff. And the one said to me, Yeah, the sheriff tells us if he catches us with any high-powered weapons, we're getting fired, okay? And so he said, come out here, Mary. He opened the trunk, and he had high-powered weapon in there. And he said, you think I'm going to listen to him? He said, absolutely not. He said, everyone I know is arming their car. And he said, if he catches us with any type of weapons other than what's authorized, we're all getting fired. He said, but I'll tell you this. I'd rather find another job, if I have to, than to be carried by six men in a box. A month after the bank robbery, the fight made its way into the Riverside Press Enterprise, the local newspaper. They reported that at a meeting of the Riverside Sheriff's Association, the crowd booed Ben Clark. In response to the outcry, Sheriff Clark said, quote, No one can say Jim Evans would be alive today because of something this department did or didn't do. Anyone who says otherwise is talking through a crystal ball and just second-guessing, end quote. At the same time, other agencies involved in Norco were making changes. The Riverside PD bought a dozen high-powered rifles, and the San Bernardino Sheriff asked the county for three dozen automatic weapons— and an M60, a machine gun, to put on their helicopter. It can fire at least 500 rounds a minute. 
Was there any fear that if you have police officers armed with such intense weaponry that that could further create a schism with the community and the police officers? I didn't. Uh, I didn't hear any. <laughs> uh, I heard no concern whatsoever uh, during that time about uh, arming the police. The general public was more concerned, I think, about uh, their own public uh, safety than they were anything else. And it was necessary. It was mandatory. Uh, there was there was really no option. The numbers of weapons of uh, semi-automatic. Uh, and powerful weapons in society. I mean, there's literally millions in the United States and the criminals can get them easily. Two weeks after the press coverage, Sheriff Ben Clark had a change of heart. Before his committee had even finished its review, he made a public announcement. The sheriff said they would buy 40 high-powered rifles for sergeants. And Coy says the sheriff also allowed deputies to carry their own guns. The sheriff did approve uh, a, a 223 rifles. They were semi-automatic uh, for personal carry in units, but there was no budget for it. So the uh, deputies had to pay for them themselves and do the training and be certified. And the sheriff began what would essentially be a SWAT team. But trust in Ben Clark had dropped, and many officers still wanted everyone in the department not just sergeants, to have assault rifles. On September 12th, 1980, the police union met and 457 men took a vote. In the end, the majority voted that they had no confidence in Ben Clark. Sheriff Clark was not moved. He said, quote, there is a great deal of emotion being exhibited in our department right now, end quote. But officers' fear of being outgunned would prove more powerful than Ben Clark's pragmatism. We'll be right back. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm Julia Paskin, your host for Weekend Edition on LAist. It is my job to get you the news every Saturday and Sunday morning so you can start your day engaged and informed, even on the weekend. But this place is too big and interesting to stay home, so I'm here to motivate you to explore L.A. from the best hikes to the most interesting events. I'll bring you the stories and the people behind them. L.A.ist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. We're back. There's always been a link between the military and police long before officers demanded high-powered weapons after the Norco bank robbery of 1980. In colonial America, policing evolved out of slave patrols formed in the early 1700s. Members often came from the militia. Later on, in the mid-1800s, the military was used to police the Reconstruction-era South. In the mid-19th century, cities began organizing their own police forces, which adopted military-style ranks and training. And many of the uniforms, of course, were patterned after uh, military uniforms. 
This is Michael Leo Owens. He's an associate professor of political science at Emory University, and he studies the civic and political consequences of policing. He says the 1960s was one moment when the militarization of police really took a step forward. We also know that during you know, early moments of large, contentious politics, riots, protests, and the like, particularly in the 1960s, we saw police interacting with National Guard in order to quell civil unrest. In 1965, Lyndon B. Johnson declared a war on crime. Every citizen has the right to feel secure in his home and on the streets of his community. I will soon assemble a panel of outstanding experts of this nation to search out answers to the national problem of crime and delinquency. He passed the Law Enforcement Assistance Act. It provided grants to local law enforcement to buy items like rifles, riot gear, and armored vehicles. And then came the war on drugs. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. Which would throw federal money and military equipment at a domestic issue and lean on SWAT teams, which were invented in Los Angeles to enforce drug laws. SWAT doesn't just stay in Los Angeles. It diffuses, right? It spreads across the United States. A little bit slow at the beginning, but then it really starts to take off. This was the era in which the Norco bank robbery happened. And years after the robbery, in 1986, deputies at the Riverside Sheriff's Office still wanted to carry more powerful weapons. And ultimately, it was officer demands that led to change within the department. This is Coy again, who worked under Sheriff Ben Clark of Riverside. The process is, is that there's pressure to start with internally, right? and it starts at the bottom, uh, I think, because those are the officers that respond to the crime that's in progress, and that's where the fear is. When Ben Clark retired in 1986, Coyce took over and he would make the official change from the six-shooter revolvers and shotguns each deputy had to semi-automatic pistols. That was uh, a pretty big deal among the troops and, and so forth. And then in 1997, not very far from Norco, another robbery shook the country, the North Hollywood bank robbery. This is the gunman after he came out of the bank. This is the first of two gunmen that shot it out with police. Their firepower seemed endless. Minute after minute went by. Scores of rounds fired. What's going on here? He's firing into the car. Many officers expended all the ammunition that they had. Nearly 2,000 rounds of ammunition were fired during the North Hollywood bank robbery. And it was all on TV. This idea that, you know, Bank robbers dressed for war in North Hollywood and to literally see it and to see the shootout. This is Professor Michael Leo Owens again. Where the police are ducking behind vehicles and they're peering around, which of course is defensive, but also, again, could be interpreted as, ah, it's somewhat embarrassing that they're put in this situation. Just like after Norco, officers began clamoring for heavy-duty weaponry. And now... They could get it. 
local law enforcement began getting military surplus items through a federal program started that same year. Items like grenade launchers, helicopters, assault rifles, and bayonets. Equipment originally valued at over $7 billion. Forty years after the bank robbery, the National Standard Police Officer weaponry is completely different. A study showed that over 95% of American police agencies now allow street-level officers to carry high-powered rifles. Do you know if there are statistics on how the introduction of assault weapons impacted the crime rate, whether the crime rate went down? Uh, No, I don't think that the crime rate went down. I think it was continuing to go up and has been (laughs) ever since. Studies show that arming police with military equipment does not reduce crime or enhance public safety and suggests that it can actually increase the use of lethal force. Intense events like the Norco robbery and shootout, they're statistically rare. But for Professor Michael Leo Owens, these are the moments that stay in the minds of officers. You know, Norco's interesting because one lesson could have been, oh, we got to really arm up. But another lesson could be, no, you just need to be better trained in dealing with these sorts of situations. Because at the end of the day, right, I forget what number of of the robbers were, were killed by the police. The others did what? They gave up. And this is the pattern, right? So we see we see some moment in time where the police find themselves overwhelmed by the force of those they're there to try to apprehend. I would say in the case of Norco, you know, one of the sad points, of course, was that a police officer was killed. So that's super problematic from the perspective of the police. Because right there, it sends the message to police officers, as well as those who support police officers, that the world is a deadly place. Officers reacted to the violence of Norco by pushing to be armed. Not as a proven method to reduce crime, but as necessary to protect their safety. And that fear for their safety It lingered for many officers, like for DJ McCarty, the officer who saw Jim Evans die. Where was your head at right after? I called work after the third day and said, I can't stay here. I got the press all over my house. Um, I'm going to come home. When DJ says home, he means the station. So they put me on the desk, (laughs) which is miserable for a patrolman. Right after the shooting, I had a problem with alcohol for about a year. And uh, uh, it just needs something other than trying to do that macho thing of handling it yourself. DJ was haunted by Jim Evans' death. Along with other officers, he was awarded a medal for his actions in the robbery. For a long, long time, I could not wear the Medal of Valor on on my chest because it made me feel like, I didn't save him. I didn't do enough to help the man that saved my life. I shouldn't be wearing this. Two weeks after Norco, there was a group therapy session with a psychologist for any law enforcement involved in the bank robbery. Officers could go around and share their feelings and experiences. But after that, there was little follow-up. 
the Riverside Sheriff's Office did not have any kind of counseling program. There was a new counseling program at the San Bernardino Sheriff's Office, where DJ worked. But at the time, many officers felt there would be consequences if they met with the counselor voluntarily. DJ remembers the thoughts that would run through his mind, imagining what would happen if he sought help. I'm done. My career is gone. Nobody's going to work with me. What? Like, and that's because that was the feeling at the time that, yes. like, people who went to therapy were, like, damaged goods or something? You were weak. You couldn't handle a job. After some time, DJ was eventually sent to see a therapist, and he began working with her. You know, it takes a while to get past it. It takes a while uh, to get past the nightmares. Uh, hell, I didn't get married till I was, like, 50-some-odd years old. Because you... PTSD, I would imagine. Um, my job was more important than anything else. But DJ's love of his job would be challenged. A little more than a year after the bank robbery, the lengthy and high-profile trial for the three surviving robbers would finally begin. And in court, DJ would be questioned about the chaos of that day and his ability to handle the assault rifle he wielded in the final standoff. Let's put it this way. I would rather go through the shooting again than have to put up what I had to put up with in court and what they called me, what they said I was doing, what I was reading in my newspaper when I got home that I killed Evans. Next time on Norco 80. At the time, it was good versus evil, and that's how it felt in there. And who was good? It was supposed to be, the DA was supposed to be good. (laughs) But for me, it was just the opposite. We just did not want them to get the death penalty. Norco 80 is written and produced by me, Antonia Cerejido, and by Sofia Paliza Carr. The show is a production of Elias Studios in collaboration with Futuro Studios. Leo G is the executive producer for Elias Studios. Marlon Bishop is the executive producer for Futuro Studios. Audrey Quinn is our editor. Joaquin Kotler is our associate producer. Juan Diego Ramirez is our production assistant. Maria Alexa Cavanaugh is our intern. Fact-checking by Amy Chardiff. Engineering by Stephanie LeBeau. Original music by Zach Robinson. This podcast is based on the book Norco 80 by Peter Houlihan. Special thanks to Tim Lopez, Tom Takar, Kurt Rothschiller, and Peter Kraska. Our website is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. The marketing team of Elias Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Kristen Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. If you want to hear more Norco 80, please follow or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, the iHeart app, or wherever you get your podcasts. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, 
J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.